0: This is The Show with Austin Huff, an on-demand late-night talk show for your ears. Hopefully the podcast is more clever than its name.
1: Oh, well, that that wasn't very nice. Uh, As you heard, this is The Show with Austin Huff. Uh, I am Austin Huff. You can find me on Twitter at Austin Huff. A few quick things about me before we get started. I have an unhealthy obsession with disposable cameras, I believe 2007 gave us the greatest season of college football all time for many reasons. And Steve Berline's cousin was my eighth grade science teacher. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I figured I'd go out on a limb and do something that no one has ever done before. And that's start a podcast. Really original concept. I know. Um, If you like what you hear, let me go ahead and get this out of the way now. If you like what you hear, please rate and review and share with a friend because that's really the only way this podcast will grow um, is through word of mouth. And, uh, you know, when people uh, post on Facebook, hey, uh, I need a new podcast to listen to. That's when you uh, comment and you say the show with Austin Huff. If you like what you hear, please rate and review and share with a friend. If you're a loser and don't have any friends, then listening to this podcast should help with that. Uh, But if you don't like what you hear, just give it some time because I promise you this podcast is only going to get better and better with every episode. Uh, And this is episode number one. But before I get started, before we get started, and since this is based out of 101 ESPN in St. Louis, I figured I needed to answer the most important St. Louis question first. First and foremost, it's get it out of the way. I went to Brentwood High School in Brentwood, Tennessee. Oh, three for a loop there. Not Brentwood, Missouri. Brentwood, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. For those that don't live here or aren't from here, if, you, if you're from St. Louis and you meet someone else from St. Louis, the first question you ask is what high school did did you go to? It's question number one. That's 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 what you do. Why? I, I think I know. And honestly, I respect the heck out of it because you know how every high school in your hometown has their stereotypes. Like, oh that, oh that's the hick high school, or oh that's that's where the preppy kids go. Oh that school, oh that's the school that's good at field hockey. Oh that's the rich school. Oh uh, that 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 school's that's where all the poor people go and wear socks on their hands as mittens in the. In the wintertime. What school is good at field hockey, by the way? Uh, by asking what high school you go to, you can kind of make an instant judgment on the kind of person you just met. We all do it. It's just St. Louis does it up front first and foremost. Like, you know, like he, the person answers what high school they go to, you, oh, this dude's a hick. Or, oh, this dude's preppy. Or, oh, this dude's good at field hockey. You catch my drift, all right? Now, that's not to say that people here judge you to your face. No, come on. it's This is the Midwest. They'll do it behind your back. Same thing applies where I grew up, in the South, except we, you know, it was the same thing. Like, we don't judge you to your face, but we will hit other people with a, oh, bless his heart, behind his back. So... Anyway, thank you again for joining me in this first episode. I promise we're going to have some fun. Uh, You heard it off the top, but I envision this podcast kind of being like a late-night talk show for your ears. It will be interview-heavy with some fun around the edges. I'm going to try and get some really great guests, um, and I've already got some lined up for the coming weeks. Some you'll know. Some you won't. Uh, Some you might be like, yeah, that name kind of sounds familiar, you know? I I love when, like, people do that, like, that name kind of sounds familiar, and then then the person, like, starts going more in depth, like, kind of describing that person, and then you're like, yeah, yeah, I think I know who you're talking about, but but then they keep going on with details about that person. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, sure, sure, yeah, yeah, and then they keep giving you details until, like, finally you just lie, and you're like, oh, yep, yep, okay, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about now. Even even though you have no idea who that is, you just lie just so they'll continue on with whatever it is they were saying about that person. Uh, But anyway, those are the kind of guests you can expect with this podcast. Um, The thing I can assure you, um, like I said earlier, we're going to have some fun. And today's guest is a blast from the past for me personally, uh, but for many of you as well. Steve Gorman, the drummer of the Black Crows, an iconic band in the 90s and the 2000s. Um, and now he's a nationally syndicated sports talk host, uh sports talk radio host for for Fox Sports uh radio. His show is of course called Steve Gorman Sports. If you listen to the show, you're you know, a lot of people get annoyed that he says sports like that. Um and uh I I, I get it. I get it. I, I used to be the executive producer of the show when, when it first kind of got on the uh, radio locally in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, we did that a lot, and it bugged me at first. But you know what? Eventually, over time, it's kind of like a family guy joke that goes on for five minutes. Eventually, over time, it gets funny, and it gets, it. gets you, you grow to love it. Um, so you just have to kind of give it some time if that's your biggest pet peeve with the show, but... Um, that's actually how we met. I was his EP. We had a radio show and uh, so we've known each other for a long time. Uh, Steve and I, I I'm actually very close with Steve. Um, I kind of look look up to him as a mentor in a lot of ways. Um, great guy so and I think that'll'll that'll play out in the um, in the interview. Uh, Now, normally with this show, I'll kind of like, you know, do some takes, uh, have some fun off the top, uh, whether talk about movies or music or sports, um, of course, a lot of sports. But but this week's a little bit different. I only have time to get into kind of one thing today before the interview because the interview is so long. Uh, I didn't want to cut any of it out because it was just, I had so much fun with Steve and I, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Um, we talk uh, everything from the Beatles to his early days as a, I mean, this guy toured the world. Keep in mind, like he, he was, he was, they were one of the biggest rock bands of the 90s and um if you're like me, you love the music of the '90s, so you think it's. I'm not going to say it's the heyday of rock and roll. I'm not going to get people to hate me for throwing out that ha- that hot take, but rock and roll was had it was pretty predominant in the '90s. There was a big role, um, and the uh, Black Crows and Steve Gorman, their drummer, was behind all that. So, um, but before we get to that interview, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the city of Davenport, Iowa.
0: You are listening to the show with Austin Huff. Honestly, this is just filler to break up segments.
1: Now, before we get to Steve Gorman, uh, you may have seen this clip floating around Twitter about like a week back or so. This this comes from the feed of a city council zoning meeting in Davenport, Iowa.
2: Hello, my name is Lisa Ann White Whitmer Wagman. I just moved here because I'm getting a divorce, and it's not final till September 18th. My husband will not give me any money, not one penny.
1: Look, I get it. as someone who just moved to a new city, a new town, I, I like I can completely empathize with with Lisa and Whitmer Wagman on this one. okay you, you don't know many people. you just you just need someone to listen to you. You just need someone to talk to. And so that's what she's doing here with this Davenport, Iowa City Council.
2: The lawyer won't help me. My husband won't help me.
1: What about your dad?
2: My dad Marlon Lee Whitmer, he's a minister.
1: Will he help you?
2: Won't help me. Oh. My stepmother won't help me.
1: What about your mother?
2: My mother passed away seven years ago.
1: Oh, oh, oh this is awkward.
2: And my dad and Annie Hockhausen, they wrote at Ver French that they both are my parents. Annie is my stepmom.
1: Again, let me remind you, this is a city council zoning meeting in Davenport, Iowa.
2: I'm not quite sure why I'm here or what I'm doing, but there's a reason. My lawyer is Justin Title.
1: Okay, that sounds like a fake name. That's definitely made up.
2: I don't know if you've ever heard of him.
1: Justin Title, and he's a lawyer?
2: I'm moving down to Texas soon to help The children in Texas. I'm a very loving parent. Very, very, very loving parent. I have a 20-year-old daughter. She's going to college at St. Ambrose this fall. She's in Muscatine College right now. Her name's Brianna Elizabeth. And...
1: Then two minutes into this lady standing at the podium, giving her just spilling out her guts to these people, someone finally speaks up.
0: Ma'am, we're
2: discussing the rezoning for the Portillos. Do you have any comments on that? For what?
1: She's like, what? Huh? So he repeats himself. We're discussing the rezoning on 53rd for... Well,
2: I live on 63rd. She's
1: like, okay, I don't live on 53rd, but I live on 63rd. So living in a Ted Block radius should qualify me to... You know, it should justify me being at this meeting. Look, I get it. The people in this Davenport City Council meeting have to listen to people like all day. They, they just want to knock them all out with no delays. But I will say this. Look at the bright side, Davenport City Council. At least, at least Lisa Ann Whitmer-Wagman didn't dive into her takes on social media and the Internet. Consider yourselves lucky.
2: Again, we're here to hear comments
1: about the rezoning.
2: Well, I don't like Facebook. Oh, no. And I don't like the Internet. Oh, no. Because I can't find a job. The library blocked my password. Now, tell me, does that make any sense to you? Ma'am, we're not here to discuss your personal life. I'm sorry.
1: But the library blocked your
2: password. Do you have any comments about the rezoning? No, sir. Have a good day. Thank you. Next.
1: God bless you, Lisa Ann Whitmer-Wagman. Look, just remember, if you ever go to a Portillo's, you got to try the hot dogs.
0: Now, it's time for a conversation with a guest who's much more interesting than Austin.
1: All right, as promised... I'm bringing to you the man, the myth, the legend, a guy I am very close with, dear friends of mine, uh, a guy I look up to a lot, a guy that I consider a mentor in many aspects of my life, Uh, Mr. Steve Gorman, drummer, founding member of the Black Crows, uh, host of Steve Gorman Sports on Fox Sports Radio, Uh, just one of the wittiest and um, most intellectual guys, can I say that, most intellectual guys that I know?
0: Sure, go ahead. Okay. You want.
1: All right. One of the most intellectual guys that I know, Mr. Yes. Steve Gorman. Steve, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join. Oh,
0: I was going to run the whole I'm not witty and I'm boring thing, but I can't. I'm just, you know, I'll, I'll give you the full Monty, Austin. It's a pleasure to be with you, sir.
1: I appreciate you not masking your wittiness and intellectualness. Intellectualness? Is that... I don't even keep
0: just roll through it man don't go back all forward momentum always remember Steve
1: you based the
0: show out of
1: uh, Nashville Tennessee um, where I was raised Um, I got to ask you just just a real quick catch up how many skyscrapers have gone up since the last time I've been in town
0: uh, the last time I'm aware of you being in town was a couple years ago. Uh, word on the street is you've been in town several times since without letting me know, so I'm not sure which estimate you want me to give, but I'm going to say it's anywhere from 24 to 36 new skyscrapers.
1: Okay, do you know who told you that I was in town? Because I need to uh, chastise them for uh, letting word slip. Because uh, I specifically uh, uh, yeah. said, do not yeah, Lisa, tell Steve. It was
0: it was Lisa. She always, she always. <laughs> read, Lisa, Yo.
1: my mom. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We didn't even make it, what, three minutes into this interview and you're already giving a shout out to my mom.
0: Respectful, but yes. All you're right. A, a, a lovely woman. And, 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 you know, we keep in touch and she's always like, did Austin call you this time? And I say no. And, you know, she knows it hurts.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that, mom. Uh, thanks for listening. Um Steve. You were in a rock band called the Black Crows.
0: That's a true statement.
1: You, uh, you know, a lot of people think that the Black Crows, or more specifically, Mister Crows Garden, was your first band, but that's not necessarily the case. You were a drummer in the much more popular Benfield Elementary School band. Now, did you guys did you guys book a lot of gigs?
0: The, the Benfield Elementary School band from uh, Severna Park, Maryland, seventy three seventy four campaign was uh as i remember it let's see the gigs were there was one one gig
1: one gig one, one gig, gig. I, now i can't imagine you played at a bar
0: it was it was in the school auditorium and it was i was relieved of duty shortly thereafter you see to be in the band and to be a member of the percussion uh section you not only had to get a snare drum and learn how to do your rudiments and play something on a snare drum they gave you a set of bells like a like a glockenspiel type of thing And you had to learn those, too, and, yeah, I just had no interest in that. So I never learned the yellow rose of Texas on the bells, and therefore I was told to park it and and not return. But the truth, the fun part of this story is I still left home every day with my snare drum and my bells because I couldn't go home and tell my parents I'd been kicked out of the band. So as far as they knew, and as the eighth kid in a family, I knew they weren't paying too close attention. As far as they knew, all was well.
1: At that point, did you – when you were sitting in the Benfield Elementary School gymnasium, were you thinking, uh, you know, this is only the first? One day I'll be at the Royal Albert Hall or, you know, one day I'll be playing, I don't know, Soldier Field. Have you ever played Soldier Field?
0: I've never played Soldier Field, uh, but but I have. Um, I, I did, well, to answer your question, I was thinking one day I'll be in a band with my older brother and we'll rock the neighborhood, uh, the cul-de-sac, like he and his high school band were currently doing.
1: See, that's the difference between you and me. See, you actually went out and actually played legit music. Mm-hmm. I started a band with my sister in my basement growing right. up, and my guitar was, uh, was my mom's tennis racket.
0: Okay. So now, 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 make no mistake, I rocked many a tennis racket gig in the basement myself as a kid. Uh, I got to the place where w- at some point, uh, obviously when I had discovered Led Zeppelin, I took two tennis rackets and fashioned a double neck. That's how seriously I took my tennis racket guitar gigs. <laughs> yes. I rocked a double-neck yes. tennis racket guitar with string and tape, and a, I believe I took a. Uh, there was actually there was there'd been a, a purchase in the house of like something in a long box, like a tube or something. There was a there was just a long skinny box that had been was uh, that had been discarded, and I cut a section of that to stick it in between the two necks to attach the boat to keep them from going towards each other or falling apart it it was quite a it, it took me probably 12 minutes to rig this guitar up it felt like 3 hours and then man it, but it changed it changed the the arc of things for sure
1: see e- even even your 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 tennis rackets were better than mine like i thought yeah. i had a pretty good t- i i used my mom's sledgehammer i think it was a Wilson sledgehammer uh tennis racket and yeah. i i thought i was pretty you know I, I thought I was, you know, you know, God's gift to rock and roll at that point. But you, you actually, even in the tennis racket uh, guitar world, you had a better one than me. You,
0: yeah. Uh, by the way, vintage vintage tennis rackets <laughs> in the Gorman house. It was a Spalding Pancho Gonzalez tennis racket. Did it on have the, the, w- bottom. the wood frame? The wood frame. Nice. Ab- absolutely. And then a, a knockoff brand like a uh, like an AJ Sports. One of those or Fuqua Sports. Some some. Third tier sporting goods company was the other tennis racket involved.
1: Now, when it came to microphone stands, we used a PVC pipe. Did did you? Where, where never
0: did, never never went near a mic stand. Never had any interest in being up front. I had to either rock the guitar or the drum kit.
1: All right. Now, moving on later on in, into your career in in uh, in 1986, in the year of our Lord, you were in a band called Lack of Interest.
0: You, wow. What, but, where, where are you finding all this information? Um,
1: I did my homework, Steve. I did my homework. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You recorded a four-song demo tape titled Content to Sit and Stare in April 1986 at the University Heights Acad- Academy Gymnasium. Now, lack of interest is obviously no longer together. Can I ask why you broke up?
0: We never got together. This is the true story. Okay, look, when I was in college, I decided it was time to take my drumming seriously, which was to say, from the time I got kicked out of the school band in fourth grade to the time I started college uh, as a freshman, I didn't play drums. I didn't even look at them. I, I I sat at a drum kit once in high school and was like, man, I really wish I could do this. But it just never went anywhere. When I got to college, I met a guy who had a drum kit. And I was like, dude, can I try that for real? And I sat down and played. And then my brother said, "Hey, I got a band for New Year's Eve. You got to be our drummer." I mean, that you know, to which I said, "Yeah, sure, no problem." So a group of us played at a New Year's Eve party, eighty-three, eighty-four New Year's Eve. We called the band Alfred and the Stately Wayne Manners, <laughs> which, which years later, when the Batman craze hit again, would have would would certainly make sense. In nineteen eighty-three, people didn't even get the reference point. Yeah, Alfred and the Stately Wayne Manners played at a New Year's Eve party, and we were really good, and we were so good that we said, "Let's go be a real band." And we were so real that we played three consecutive New Year's Eve parties, and that was all. Like, we couldn't get it together until, like, mid-December every year to put a new band together. (laughs) So it was a rotating lineup. But at the end of that, after that third party, a couple of the guys and I, who went back to Bowling Green, to Western Kentucky University, we said, hey, let's, let's really do this for real. Like, let's play some parties in town. I knew a kid on the rugby team. There was a house called the Rugby House. Where people got drunk and fought a lot, and we started playing their Friday night parties, and we changed the name of the band every time, which does not help you at all build a fan base. <laughs> right, right, very, very poor marketing decision. But it was t- we had there were timely news stories that needed to be reflected. We hey. appeared as we were Baby Fay and the Heartless Baboons at one party because there was a. A famous story of a baby receiving a baboon heart, and her name was Faye, so <laughs> that would stand a reason. Um, you know, a lot of those, we were Coop DeVille in the Autos, and everybody had a name. I was Dodge Dart, the drummer. Uh, Stu Baker was the singer that night, you know. <laughs> uh, typical, you know, nonsense. But at some point during that, the guitar player, a friend of mine, said, well, I've actually written some songs. You know, like, I got these parts. Let's, let's actually have some original songs. And... I, I can't believe I'm admitting this. I wrote lyrics to those songs. Oh my gosh! And then and then he said we we played around on them and he said let's record these. And we went to my ho- my high school my alma mater University Heights Academy where my mom was the director of admissions therefore she had a key. And on a Sunday when the school was closed we just needed a big space we went to my high school gym and set up a little four track Fostex recording machine and we recorded these songs. And so we had our four song. EP. We just burnt, We just made copies on cassette tape and handed them to friends, and we called it Lack of Interest. There was never a band. There was never a gig under that name, nothing, but we needed a name, and literally we couldn't come up with a name, and so it made sense to call it Lack of Interest.
1: See, I assumed the band name was the reason you guys are no longer still together.
0: Well, that had something to do with it. Well, what happened was the two, the two guys that I recorded that with in the spring of 86 had the gall to graduate from college that spring, and uh, I, of course, was looking for a reason to drop out. So I was like, guys, let's you know, stay in Bowling Green and let's be a band. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And they went back to their respective hometowns and have a life. I, on the other hand, stayed around Bowling Green until like the fall of 86 when I did drop out and move to Atlanta to pursue uh, what has since been, uh, come, has since come to be known as the dark years, the 27 years I spent. Uh, in Mister Crow's Garden slash The Black Crows.
1: That's a lot of a lot of dark years. Now speaking of crows, Cameron Crow. What about he, him? He directed Almost Famous. He did Almost Famous. Uh, one of the stars is, of course, Kate Hudson. Yes, Kate Hudson. Everyone knows was married to Chris Robinson, the frontman of The Black
0: Crows. I don't think everybody knows that, but but anyone who was paying attention 12, 18 years ago might. Yes.
1: Okay, so for those paying attention 18 years ago, would know that. Uh, so, my question is Is Almost Famous based on your band? Are you being serious? No. I, I, I just, Steve, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask these questions. The movie
0: was in the can before those two met. So the answer is no.
1: Okay. All right. Because I was going to say that I didn't think it was because the Stillwater's drummer is a total dud. Total dud.
0: Yeah. I. I saw the movie once. I, I went to like the big premiere when it came out, mm-hmm. and uh, and I haven't seen it since.
1: Oh well, it's great. Phil Seymour Hoffman, Francis McDormand, uh, uh, 2018 Academy Award winner Francis McDormand. Jim- Jimmy Fallon's in it. Jimmy Fallon. You've got a young uh, Zoe Deschanel, and this is before she tried to force singing into all of her movies. Vicky Valencourt from the Waterboy, Stevie, I think you should Hold
0: on, hold on, hold on. Jimmy Fallon, I have no recollection of him being in that movie. He was the manager that they
1: brought in. The manager. Oh, that's
0: right. He's on the plane when yeah, it almost
1: crashed. Yeah, they the uh, the big-time manager, if you will, that they yeah. tried to replace their current manager with. So, Of course. Uh now I guess I'd uh, follow up for Cameron Crowe. What what was the more you've seen almost famous, so you could probably attest to the validity of it. What was the more realistic movie? The Cameron Crowe movie, Almost Famous, or Vanilla Sky.
0: Oh, Vanilla Sky, without a yeah, doubt. No one's ever I... made a realistic uh, rock and roll movie. They, <laughs> I, I, they, they. It makes me nuts to watch movies like that.
1: That's what I. That's what I assumed as much.
0: The only way to properly, uh, the only way to really correctly show a band or any facet of the music industry. I mean, it has to be a, a comedy. You, you can't. You can't try to present it in any way, shape, or form as a drama or something to be taken seriously. The only part about life making music or in the music industry that's worth considering is, is the taking seriously is the music itself. The finished record that you put on, that is beautiful, and that's that can be art, and it can be poetry, and it can be religion, and it can take your whole life away. But the people responsible for making that beautiful music are just shithouse crazy nine times out of ten – and, and and it's a it's a completely absurd rat race, hamster wheel way of living for everyone involved. And and you can if you try to present that as being sacred or magical or special, you just you, you miss the point of it. You just you can't do you can't do it justice. You can have documentaries where you just have endless hours of footage of watching bands create and musicians create, but if you're gonna do a fictionalized account, you better just play it for comedy and then oh by the way, the music's awesome. Nothing else works.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Now, now talking about albums and music, the, the, you know, obviously everyone, whether you're you're a musician or you're not, you've got albums that were influential in your life. Mm-hmm. What were those albums for you?
0: Oh, I mean, so way too many to list, but I can say that the first album I ever owned was a Bee Gees album called Two Years On, and I won it as a door prize at my oldest brother's uh, the community college basketball game when I was five.
1: I think that's pretty much how we all won our uh, first albums. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, they called the ticket number, and I had it, and I walked down the bleachers, I remember, and I walked across the court at halftime of a basketball game. And a guy at the scores table handed me an album, and I was like, "This is the greatest day of my life!"
1: Right. And now, your first album, I would say, I would say that's a great answer because your first album, I, I think, for most people, is the most influential album of their I, lives.
0: Well, I'll put it to you this way: I'm in my studio now, uh, where we do Steve Gorman Sports. Behind me is a, several crates full of albums, and it is sitting right there. I've I've never lost it. I've never not known where that the, album the original is. copy. I got it. Yeah,
1: that's awesome absolutely. That is incredible. Yeah. And like,
0: I feel and, like... and I should say, I played that album so much that it drove my older brother, Tom, so crazy that he <laughs> then, that he then came to me after about a month and said, here, take these. And he handed me down three of his old Beatles albums. So uh, he gave me Meet the Beatles, Help and Rubber Soul. And once I put those on, then I had two bands and then I went full on Beatles. But the Bee Gees were always my first. And of course, this is we're talking nineteen seventy one, so this is pre disco Bee Gees, this is pop era Bee Gees. But um but I and then I got those Beatles records and just went crazy there. But those albums are also here. I've never I've never lost any of the original you know, and then I started collecting Beatles albums. I still have all of the first albums I ever owned like as a kid.
1: That's that's awesome. That's and and what a great tactic to wear out a, an album just to the point where your your, your brother is like, you know what, dear, listen to these for a while. Listen. Well, to some- I,
0: I can I, – this is an honest-to-God story. I mean, I mean this sincerely. I remember sitting right where I was in – we called it the pool room. It was the room in our house that had a pool table and the stereo, but it was the pool room. So I was in the pool room, and the door flew open, and my older brother standing there – and he's looking at me i mean he wanted to kill me And he goes here <laughs> just take these and play these okay and he turned around and stormed out like i'm five so he was 16 so you know he's completely out of patience right. with me at that moment <laughs> yeah. and he's so sick of hearing lonely days lonely nights where would i be without my woman by the bgs that he had and he picked the three beatles albums he was the most over in his own collection you know, he didn't hand me a Grand Funk record or anything that was even cooler than the Bee Gees or than the Beatles at that moment. But still, it was a it was a strong move on his part, and it did the trick.
1: It's like it's like how uh, Wayne Campbell from Wayne's World always says. You know, like uh, Led Zeppelin didn't write tunes that everyone liked. They left that to the Bee Gees. Yeah, <laughs> that's
0: a great line. Yeah.
1: So uh, now, now Steve, like, I, and I'm trying to think of like like the albums that were most influential. The the most influential for me were were some of like the early ones for me, and I think this might this might give you an insight as to the kind of person that I am. But but some of my first albums were uh, the Sign by Ace of Bass. Okay. Uh, Jock Jams Volume Two. Okay. I don't know why I skipped Volume One. I think I, I think I got it for my my birthday at my birthday party. Someone gave it to me. Makes sense. And uh, the Godzilla soundtrack. I think they all just pretty much changed my life.
0: Well, you know, whatever it takes. The key, the, the key here is that the music you first got influenced you in a way that you didn't pursue a life in music. And I think that's, you know, for the best.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that because I, I, I was... I was uh, Nobody
0: ever put on Jock Jams Volume 2 and said, oh, my gosh, I have to go be a musician <laughs> right, is the right. point I'm making. So, you right. know, I, and, and again, I think that's for the best.
1: Yeah, uh, I think K.C. Casey, Casey and the Sunshine Band was on there. Uh, uh, Make a little love was on that album, and sure it was. And I didn't know for the longest time. I didn't know that the whole song was basically about making love and having sex and just.
0: Well, uh, when I was a kid, the song that did that for me, where I when I, when it dawned on me what it was about, it was a real moment. Was a song called Afternoon Delight by the Starland <laughs> yes. Vocal Band. Yeah, right. Right. And I'm I'm walking around the house at 10 years old or something, just singing it. Looking for a little looking forward to a little afternoon delight. And I'm like, skyrockets in flight afternoon. And my brother looks me, and goes, "You know, you're singing a song about people having sex, right?" <laughs> and I mean, you know, I stopped me in my tracks. Wait a minute, do what now?
1: Yeah, you're like afternoon delight. I just thought it was like a good sandwich or something, you know? Like well, it, yeah, just or,
0: like... and and th- there was that and the time that in the middle of me. Walking around singing uh, the Beatles song with a little help from my friends, my father, who was uh, who was on his best day, terrifying to be around and intimidating at all times, and a, a former well, I can't say former or ex. He was a Marine, while he was no longer actively oh, yeah. in the Marines. You know, there's no right. such thing as an ex Marine or a former You're Marine. You're
1: always in the Marines.
0: Uh, he, I remember, he just looked across the room and he said. Yeah, the song where he says, "I get high with a little help from my friends." You're singing about drugs, son.
1: <laughs> you're like, what? Oh, scarring, oh,
0: scarring oh. moments from childhood that we all remember.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. That is that's fantastic. Now, talking about the Beatles, you're a big Beatles fan, obviously. I am? You,
0: I think they're the most underrated band in the history of rock music. And And I mean, and I mean that sincerely. They're underrated,
1: and they are very, they are very highly rated. So to say that should tell you how much, how much you think of them. And you actually, over the last couple of years, you kind of became acquaintances, I guess you could say, with Ringo Starr. I think the word is besties, besties, BFFs, right? Yes, sir. You guys, uh, I constantly see you guys writing on each other's Facebook walls, and I'm just like, geez, get a room, you two. You know, it's like that online PDA. uh,
0: Okay. For, first of all, first of all, it's Sir Richard to you now. Okay, oh, that's
1: right. That's right. The men, I apologize. The
0: man that tapped on the shoulder with a sword recently, so please, please I, respect.
1: I I apologize. Um, so, Sir Ringo Starr, which is yeah. awesome. You know, they say never meet your heroes. Is that is that true for you?
0: uh not in this case uh he's been nothing but but a, but a beacon of positivity and uh and 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 warmth since I, in in the in the interactions I've had with him which truth be told are few and far between but he's <laughs> right. he's very friendly and um and 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 always immediately responsive like if you know like if I have a bizarre notion like I would love to have Ringo on my radio show you know he gets right back and does it so it's beautiful and I love that and it's been great I've only been disappointed i've met a whole lot of the guys that i was at some point really obsessed with as a kid and i've rarely if ever been genuinely disappointed i got to think about it i mean i've been disappointed when i met people that i respected or really liked but i can't say they were actual heroes you know you meet musicians or you meet athletes or you meet actors or whoever and you're like that guy's that guy's awesome and then you meet him and then you're kind of like eh, i could have done without that but but (laughs) as far as as far as anybody that I was genuinely like, oh my God! I, I haven't had any nightmares with that.
1: You you haven't met Paul, have you?
0: I have not, okay. and uh, and and I and I I dare say that uh, I don't know if I could. That that would be a, that would be too much. I would, it'd be horrible to to be a puddled mess in front of somebody like that. But at this at this stage, it's gone so long where I haven't met him that uh, that if I, I know I actually I say that. The truth is, if I met him, I'd be like, hey, what's up, man? I know enough people that know him where he's just a dude. He'd walk in the room. And you'd hang out, and it would actually feel natural. And then about twelve hours later, yeah, I, I do know it would hit me. <laughs> that's and when you just, get the cold I'd lay in a sweats. dark room and cry for yeah. six days.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Did did uh, and you never had the chance to meet meet George
0: back in the day? Correct. I I that's correct. I did not meet George. Okay. Now, How about the hey, the guy that signed the Black Crows and produced our first two albums is is my age, but he's a year older than me. George Draculius is his name. He's a wonderful man. And in 1989, or no, in like, yeah, in like 89, when we were making our record, he had been in L.A. and uh, around the time the Traveling Wilburys were putting a record together. And he knew uh, Tom Petty's camp, and then he he ended up at a place where they were doing a photo shoot, and he got George Harrison's autograph. And he was telling me this story, and he goes, yep, so now I got all four of them now. And I looked at him, I said, what do you mean? He goes, I have all four Beatles uh, autographs. I said, you... You have all four Beatles autographs. He goes, Yeah, well, I met George at this session. I met Ringo in LA last year at an event. Uh, and then I just met Paul uh, in New York a year ago at a VH1 thing. And I, and, you know, but John Lennon had been dead at this point for nine years. Right. And I said, I go, You don't have John Lennon's autograph. And this is a totally true story. He looks at me and goes, Got it at Disneyland in 1975. (laughs) Or no, Disney World in Florida. John Lennon took his son Sean to Disney World in like 1974. And George was there with his family, and he was like 10 years old. And he was like, hey, there's John Lennon. And he ran over and got his autograph.
1: My gosh. I pretty was going to say, oh, yeah, I was like, okay, how is this going to pan out? Because the timing was not working out to where he would have gotten, if he's your age, to where the point where he would have gotten is, unless uh, the, the chance chance encounter of a, a run-in at Disney World, I guess.
0: Yeah, pretty great.
1: All right, so given your love for the Beatles, I, uh, I want to play a game with you. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah please. Uh, it's called, the name of the game is called Austin and Steve Reveal Their Top Five Beatles Songs. You you want to know the rules?
0: Uh please tell me.
1: Uh you and I reveal our top 5 Beatles songs.
0: That's a. That's one of the most aptly named games I've ever heard of. That's incredible.
1: Well, I'm. I'm glad you feel that way because it took me a long time to uh, come up with it. Now, I mean,
0: if someone says, "Let's play a game of risk," that could go in a million different directions. Right.
1: Yeah, you have no idea that. Yeah. yeah are you are you bungee jumping off of a, a tall bridge or are you just playing the board game where or just you
0: start facing your greatest fears? You know what I mean? Let's ooh, go that way.
1: Yeah, that's deep. Uh, which I, I don't really feel like doing here. So we're just going to play Austin and Steve Reveal their top five Beatles songs, okay?
0: Okay. Can I make fun of yours?
1: Yeah, but, but you're going to go first.
0: Top five. So you want number one or you want number five?
1: Let's start at five and work our way down. It's build okay. Suspense.
0: All right. Um, it's, it's what is today, Wednesday. So, of course, this list could not only be different by tomorrow, but within, say, 12 minutes from now. But right now, I will go the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band Reprise the second-to-last song on the album, Sgt. Pepper's Only Heart Skill Band, the one that starts with Paul counting it in, and then that great drum groove, uh, Straight Time by Ringo for about eight bars, which, and I say that sincerely, I've always loved that, because that very piece of drumming uh, is probably the single piece of music most responsible for me deciding I had to play drums.
1: Do you you ever, like, try and mimic the things he would do? Oh, yeah. uh yeah and do you have any success in doing it
0: you can replicate uh the the feel and the vibe somewhat Ringo's a Ringo's an odd case because of course it, it, there's this thing in the world that people say oh he's the luckiest guy in the world he wasn't a great drummer it's which and I'm not going to take this down that rabbit hole but it, it's an absurd comment he's a spectacular musician and an incredibly unique drummer and a huge part of the reason the Beatles came together to be such a great live band, which they actually were, they also get knocked for not being a great live band. They were a tremendous live band. If you've seen Eight Days a Week, the Ron Howard documentary, you know what I'm talking about. But this, here's the point. Ringo's left-handed. He plays a right-handed drum kit. So every bit of his instinct is to lead with his left hand, but when you play with a right-handed kit, you lead with your right. So long story short, when he goes to play a drum fill, if I'm gonna play a fill on the kit, I start that fill nine times out of ten with my right hand. Uh. My right hand hits the the rack tom or the snare or the. It starts from the right. Well, Ringo's fills start with the left, even if he's hitting his floor, a rack tom. So when he goes to start like playing a beat, and then he wants to do like a do 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 one of those, in and, and he starts with his left hand, which requires like an extra twenty seventh of a second for that drum fill to start as he shifts his left hand over and it creates a feel that is impossible to replicate. Even if you do the same thing, if you try to play with your left hand, leading the fills, it just never sits exactly right. Drummers know what I'm talking about. All this to say, he just had a feel drummer. It's all about feel. Anybody can learn how to play rudiments and go fast and, and play things technically. But the greatest drummers in rock history, all have a feel. It's always very unique. The greatest drummers are guys that when you hear a band with another drummer, you go, what's wrong with that band? And so all that to say, I love the reprise on Sgt. Pepper.
1: All right. So number five, the reprise to Sgt. Pepper. Yep. Number
0: four. Wait, I'm doing all mine and then you go? Yeah, we don't yeah, go yeah, back yeah. And No, forth? no, no, no,
1: no. We're going down Steve's list, then we got on Austin's list.
0: Great. Scott, uh, I Need You, which is a George song on the album Help. Okay. As a, Even as a young lad, I would stand there with my Pancho Gonzalez uh, with guitar, and I would sing and play that song and sing it and get emotionally worked up. Like, I, I was picturing, you know, having written the song to express my love to Ellen Haneson, who lived up the street from me and would never to this day know of the great love affair that we were supposed to have had.
1: Nice, man. Nice. Yeah. There you have it. Well, okay. Uh, number... Uh, number I'm, three,
0: I'm going to go back to back some revolvers on you. That would be the seminal album, the many say the greatest Beatles album from 1966. Uh, number three would be "She Said, She Said," uh, which is a John song. It's totally insane, but again, the drum track on there is impossible to imagine anybody thinking it makes sense, and it's just brilliant and beautiful and, and crazily unique. And then number two, I'm just going to cut to the line from that same era, a B-side. Uh, to the Paperback Writer single is called Rain, and that also, for the drum track alone, always a song that if I hear uh, She Said, She Said, or Rain, or my number one song, which I'll share momentarily, I I always just have to crank them up to maximum volume. I I can never get tired of anything with those tunes.
1: Oh, my gosh. All right, so uh, I guess guess the time has come. What is Steve Gorman's number one Beatles song?
0: You know, everyone. I want you to say "Strawberry Fields" or "A Day in the Life" or "Hey Jude." Just one of the epic all-timers. And for me, it's it's always been from the minute I first heard it. Truly, if you say "Gun to Your Head," you got one last Beatles song. I am going to hear "Paperback Writer."
1: Ooh, good choice. Good choice. That uh, that that is number two in my honorable mentions list. I uh, that you, Steve. I'm just going to say this up front: you're going to
0: hate my list. I'm not going to hate your list because it's Well, you're not going to hate it because it's so I Beatles all the songs. Right. I, no, but you're well, going to hate on, my hang on, order. Hang, on, hang, on, hang on. I am going to hate your list. I'm going to love the song, <laughs> but I'm going to hate your list. <laughs> yeah,
1: okay. There we go. All right. So so for me, my top five, number five, I start at Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, just the regular song. Okay. It was one of the uh, – I so I played guitar for like three years of my life, mm-hmm. and that was the first song that I learned how to play on the guitar. Um, I, uh, I went to my guitar teacher he said, what are your top favorite bands? Um, I said, (laughs) I said the Beatles, number one. I said Kiss, number two, which I, I knew one Kiss song at that time and it was rock and roll all night.
0: That's all right. Everybody has a Kiss moment.
1: And, uh, and I, I don't even remember, I think the, um... I think the third band I told him was, uh, who's the band that sings uh, You're Unbelievable? Is it like, a, uh, oh, what is the name of that band?
0: You're Unbelievable. Oh, that yes. I, I, I really don't know, and, and I don't want to know.
1: Uh, EMF, EMF. Sorry. Okay. It, it right. blanked on me. So that right there should tell you how little my number two and number three bands I knew about. But but number one, I knew the Beatles. And so when he came to me with Sergeant Pepper's, I was like, yes, let's definitely learn that song. And I learned it. And uh, I know I still know the chorus to it, um, but I don't I don't remember any other any other parts of playing the guitar. So don't ask me. Don't don't hand me a, an acoustic guitar and say, hey man, do you know Wonder? Or you know, Wonderwall by Oasis, and I'll, I'll say no, I don't. Find okay, someone else on. at this campfire that does.
0: Hang on, I'm writing it down. Don't hand Austin an acoustic guitar. Got yes, it. Thank okay. you.
1: Thank you. Number four. Hey, hey,
0: hey wait, hold on. Here's a, here's a great guitar, Sergeant Pepper story, really quickly. Yes, please. And this is a true story. Great, a- great. One of the me.
1: best album covers of all time. I, I would, I would well, argue, cer-
0: certainly the single most iconic, right. without question. First album to ever show that have the lyrics printed on it. Uh, also, just worth noting, um, Sgt. Pepper was released on June 1st, 1967, and the Beatles knew, and specifically Paul McCartney knew, when the world gets a hold of this record, it's going to change everything. It's going to literally change the way people look at pop music and the way people look at the Beatles, and we've done this amazing masterpiece. And he was right. So, with that being the mood and the the, the mindset he's in, the night before it's released – there's a gig in London that every, everybody's been obsessing over this American guitarist who is tearing up the London scene. His name is Jimi Hendrix. And so McCartney, finally, on the advice of Eric Clapton and, and Jimmy Page, who was a, a top session guy already at the time, and Jeff Beck, all the guitar players in London were constantly saying, there's this kid from Seattle, and he's mind-blowing. We all have to go see him. you got to see him. you got to see him. So the night before Sgt. Pepper's released, when Paul McCartney's like sitting on this Atom bomb of, of incredible music, and he knows, like, tomorrow the world will have its mind blown. I'm going to go see this new hot shit guitar player tonight. Just to set the table and what, what what's happening. He goes into a club, and Jimi Hendrix walks out, and he sees Paul McCartney's in the room, and he opens the show with Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, which had not yet been released. But he had gotten an advanced copy of and taught it to his band, oh my gosh. and he did it looking at paul mccartney like who's like holding the biggest secret in the world and he's like yeah i got one for you and and mccartney said he goes i've just never been more like what is happening you know like how did this happen and of course hendrix just rips the ass end out of the song and he destroys it and mccartney said like the next day he was like that our our version sucks like like He's already it's not even out yet, and I've heard someone best our best thing ever. So I always thought that was pretty great. What a buzzkill. Awesome. Uh now I've got some – And anyway, that's why the Beatles had Hendrix killed three years later. Ooh, I wasn't supposed <laughs> oh, to share that part.
1: Ooh, ooh. Uh don't worry, I'll I'll edit this part out. Thanks. Um uh I've got a little history about that song. Um it was twenty years ago today, actually, that Sgt. Pepper um taught a band to play. Okay. Um And, you know, they were going in and out of style, but uh, here's, they're here's, guaranteed here's, to.
0: Here's here's the thing. When it was the 20th anniversary of that record coming out, I remember thinking, God, 20 years ago. That is so <laughs> yeah, It long. actually was.
1: It literally was 20 years ago yeah, that and, day.
0: Uh, and, at, and, and that day, of course, was 31 years ago. So I remember when it was 20 years ago. And thinking, man, twenty years ago was forever. And it's been thirty one years since then. So um my that's just my way of saying I'm old and time's going way too fast.
1: Yeah, that's it's been one Austin's lifetime since then. Uh number four on my top five. Magical Mystery Tour.
0: I can see it. That's I can see it.
1: that just gets me going. That like that kind that song just like whenever I you you hear it cue uh, uh, you know, I I, I don't know, I just it just gets me pumped for some reason. Was... I uh, I
0: I I'm with you. I, I I agree with that sentiment completely. And and I I remember as a kid realizing, wait, this song changes tempo like drastically, <laughs> yeah. slows down and speeds up, and thinking, can you do that?
2: Yeah, and, right. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, for a throwaway song to to stick on a really poorly executed idea for a movie and a crazy thing, you could do a lot worse.
1: Right. Yes. Thank you. Uh, uh my number three song, Piggies.
0: Oh come on, come on! Opt I in. I
1: I don't know what it is, Steve. I don't know what it is about that song.
0: It's the socialist. It's the socialist in you yearn that you've buried underneath all of your capitalist dogma, yearning to be free and join George Harrison and mocking people whose lives are spent trying to chase the almighty dollar or pound.
1: Everywhere there's little piggies rolling in the dirt. <laughs> like I just I can't. Yeah, I can't not like. Just and even just always like a harpsichord or something that that that's in that song. Like it it just I don't know, I that that song is resonant. And when I was younger, obviously, like I was just like this song is about literally legitimately about piggies. And I think being a kid Beatles fan, you're like, you know, it was almost like a Sesame Street song played by one of sure. the greatest bands of all time. So I I think that was my connection to it and I've just loved it ever since.
0: I'm not going to argue a thing, but I will say that if you go right to Rocky Raccoon, we're going to have a problem.
1: See, <laughs> that's funny you said that. Rocky Raccoon. Rocky Raccoon is on uh, my uh, honorable mentions list.
0: Okay, all right, fair it, enough.
1: It barely, barely well, did make connect, the cut. Any
0: kid that if you've heard Piggies, then you've obviously also heard Rocky Raccoon. So, mm-hmm. and, and as and as a kid, you're going to like both. That's yeah. all I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Uh, and my number two. Which I actually love this song and could listen to it at any moment in my life. Eleanor Rigby. What wow, really? Yeah, love that song. My, and fun fact: my parents actually their boat is named Eleanor Rigby, which I think is kind of funny in a way. But it's but they're also big Beatles fans. Obviously, that's that's how I picked up on it at such a young age. And um, and yeah, and so I I just love that song.
0: I don't well. Uh, first, the first things first. It's not a boat; it's a yacht. Okay, I think they'd be offended if you said boat. And <laughs> it's, secondly, it's an ocean
1: liner, actually. Yeah, you haven't <laughs> well, seen the new there, one.
0: Well, last I saw, well, last I heard from Lisa, they were on their way to Newport for the Regatta. So all I'm saying right. is,
1: but they're taking uh, the long way. They're taking the long way through the sure. uh, the uh, the channel.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Right. Austin, uh, Eleanor Rigby's a—it's a fantastic song. I mean, your, your list—I mean, I, I could, I could, I could make fun and all that, but the truth is, I mean, it's hard to go wrong. You're, you're choosing good songs. I think it says a lot about uh, parts of your personality that you're trying to keep under wraps, and and I think you need—I think you need to lay on a couch somewhere and do some talking, but that's fine. Go
1: Probably, ahead. yes, you're probably right. Um,
0: Number one, I'm going to guess it. If I guess it correctly, you you have to you can't change it on the fly. You got to tell me if I'm right.
1: Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, at the end of the day, they're all Beatles songs, so they're all going to be good. But yeah, my number one. If you can guess it, I will. Um, I don't know. I'll Venmo you fifty bucks.
0: I I I, I think you're going to try to you know you're you're going to shock the world by saying your favorite Beatles song is Yesterday.
1: Ooh, no, too too cliche. Too cliche. I think I I. It's a good song. It's a great song.
0: I just thought maybe it was a. With you, it's all about the strings. So you know yeah. that's why I went from Rigby to yesterday. Uh,
1: now I will say I am a huge strings fan. It, sure. it like if if there's a rap song, if there's a hip hop song with strings in it, I will like it. I don't care what it's about or who's who's the rapper behind it. I will I will fall in love with it. Like I just there's something about strings in. Songs that I love, so it's a, it's good a good guess, but no, that's not good to know. My number one song, I am the Walrus.
0: Starts with strings,
1: mm, exactly. Doesn't it? Mm, yeah, and it's and it's yeah, pretty it's a very slow, pretty
0: pretty, pretty swinging, slinky little weird drum track on that one. I can't right. argue with it.
1: Oh, yeah, he is you all, yeah. me is we all. I don't I don't know if that 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 sounds nothing like the Beatles, but that's that's the only British accent I can do.
0: Um, dripping from a dead dog's eye. That was the line when I was a kid. I was always like, that's pretty cool. John was cool.
1: I had no idea what it meant. And I would always like envision whenever I'd listen to that song, see, growing up, I wanted to be a, a movie director and I, so I would, I would like make these movies in my head and I had the most elaborate set and it all took place in my fifth grade classroom where literally, like, I was—I I think I was maybe sitting in a drum kit, and I—I <laughs> I suspend from the ceiling, and then I—and uh, then I get up, and like all of my classmates are just like, whoa, "Whoa, yeah!" And then so I then I get out into the hallway, and I start walking, and literally, as I pass each classroom, all of the kids from that classroom get out behind me, and I've got literally the whole fifth grade class marching behind me, and we walk out to the classroom, and and it ends. I'm on top of a uh, of a monkey bar set. And it's like a drone shot, and it just slowly zooms out, and you just see this huge crowd of my fifth grade class, and I'm just like looking and pointing at the camera and it, and that that was. Uh, I don't know why I just shared that with you. I feel like that's. I, I don't know if I've ever shared that with anyone.
0: You heard what I said about getting on a couch. Didn't yeah,
1: you? yeah. I, I'm actually laying on a couch right now. I thought you you meant <laughs> you meant that literally, so and you were just gonna feel me out and take some notes, but uh, but yeah. So at the end of the day, I am the walrus. I love that song.
0: I, I, you know, again, I'd love to make fun of your list, but you know, you 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 went you went three for five there, man. That's pretty good.
1: My least favorite. Can I tell you? My, share you with, uh, with you. My least favorite. Of course. Yellow submarine.
0: Really? You like to sing songy uh, piggies, but yes. Yellow submarine turns up. What about altogether now?
1: Uh, altogether now is fine. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's just something about Yellow submarine. I think it's. I don't know. I. I just... What
0: about you? Know my name. Look up the number.
1: I don't know if I've, I've heard that song.
0: Ooh, a little B-Side or The Inner Light. There's a few that you gotta, you got to go look them up, you know, search them out. You, you will probably add those to your I don't like this song list.
1: Okay. all right, <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Send me – yeah, give me the recommendations of the song you do, that I will you, like. add. You
0: know my name. Look up the number. Go, go listen to it. It's on YouTube, I'm sure. Okay.
1: All right, yeah. deal. Uh, now, real quick, before, before you go, I just had a couple more questions because I found this out while I was doing my Steve Gorman homework.
0: Okay. All right. I'll, I'll make it easy for you. Teddy didn't know that she was in the car, and it was a, the grassy knoll was full of gunmen. And Sirhan Sirhan absolutely was hypnotized. Is, are we? Is that it? Are we good now?
1: Yeah, that's pretty much all I had. Okay, great. <laughs> no, uh, you. No, this is even this is even bigger. This is monumental. Okay. And some people. I don't think many people know this about you, but you were an RA at Western Kentucky.
0: North Hall, Jack, nineteen eighty-six. Hey, go tops, you know. Yeah.
1: So, I got to know, man. Were you a Were you a strict RA? Were you like a nerdy RA? Like, <laughs> you you kind of give off that vibe that you'd be real strict at quiet hours. Like you'd oh, go around yeah. and you'd write people up. And
0: I I told I, I had a my last semester the fall of eighty-six. I had it was I had a. I had an upperclassman, I had one or two upperclassmen total, everyone else was a freshman. Um, one of the upperclassmen was in the ROTC and he was always gone on bivouac every weekend and, and I didn't like him, he kind of gave me the creeps. Um, and then a couple of friends that lived there that were like my age, but then everyone else were freshmen. And what I remember clearly saying to them was, if I, because no alcohol was allowed on campus back then, and I was supposed to confiscate it, and I said, I'm only going to confiscate alcohol if you have it in the hallway. If you're too stupid not to just leave it in your room, I'm going to take it. And if I'm listening to music and your stereo's louder than mine, then you're going to get in trouble. But otherwise, I need to I, I if I have the loudest music on the floor, everything's cool.
1: That is the that that is like the quintessential RA line, right there. Yeah.
0: I was an RA for one reason, and of course, you know what the answer is because I got my own room. That was it. <laughs> I was not there to write people up. I was not there to – in fact, I was such a horrible RA that when I, when I knew in the middle of my – not even the middle. Two weeks into my last semester, I decided I'm going to drop out and move to Atlanta and start a band with my friend. But it was September, and I wasn't going to go there until after Christmas. So I thought, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just audit all my classes so that I don't fail them all. I'll never return to them. I'll spend the rest of the semester and like a college farewell tour, if you will. Just having a great time, playing tons of basketball, and doing what I do. Not going to class, but at least now I won't be going to class, and I won't feel guilty about it. And yeah. I had a I had a great three months on campus. It was absolutely spectacular. And uh, and the point of this entire uh, segue, I've already forgotten. This entire diversion.
1: <laughs> it's all right. You have you, you haven't gone back and finished, have you? No, sir. And you don't. I assume you don't have plans to.
0: I have zero plan. I'm, I'm, a, I'm look the, the the alumni association hits me up for money often enough to tell me I don't need a diploma. So see,
1: I was gonna say now that was my next question. Does Western claim you as an alumni?
0: Uh, well, yes, sir. There was a there was a well, there was one time on the alumni magazine, and on the cover was me, Romeo Crinell, an astronaut and an actor on the show Smallville. Like I was like, okay, <laughs> I guess I'm one of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and But, of course, the most That's, famous Western alumnus of all time. Hold, is, on, is, hold on, hold on, hold on.
1: You, Romeo Cornell, and an actor from Smallville.
0: And an astronaut, yeah, some and a, astronaut. And
1: some astronaut, right. Yeah. Everyone's an astronaut these days. But, but like, did you ever, like, <laughs> just one day, you're, like, you're, you're walking around, you're, you know, you're walking up the hill in uh, Western Kentucky, and you're just, like, yeah, one of these days I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be grouped together with Romeo Cornell and, I, and it, an actor from from Smallville. I it,
0: it I mean you know you can't nothing I, what my I spent three and a half years on that campus and all I was trying to figure out was where my next meal was coming from.
1: I I see. I almost think that's that to just that's like that's like kind of putting you down to pair you with them. Like those guys are probably bragging to their friends. Yeah, I'm paired with Steve Gorman. And the
0: uh, but no, nobody scratches, nobody touches the the bottom of John Carpenter's feet. However, John Carpenter of Halloween fame and Oh yeah. Escape from New York, he is also an alumnus of Western Kentucky University.
1: Okay, so yeah, see that's an, that's like obviously like I went to Mizzou, you know that our probably our biggest um, alumni quote unquote, if you want to call it that, is Brad Pitt. But he did the exact same thing you did. Round spring break, his I, I believe it was his senior year, yeah. left and never came back, never finished.
0: Yeah, yet... people can. And it's funny because people have always said I look a lot like Brad Pitt.
1: Right. I was gonna say that's. Oh, he's...
0: I remember what I was gonna say. Not only this is how bad of an RA I was. <laughs> that when I when I so I, so I spent a whole semester not going to class and hanging out and just being like the cool guy. And during that semester, I met one of the freshmen on my floor who was a singer and a guitar player in a cover band in town and they were doing cure songs and Smith songs. And he was really into new wave and post punk stuff, which in Bowling Green, Kentucky in the mid eighties, not too many people knew that music. So I was like, man, where's this kid from? He turned out he was from Nashville, Tennessee, and he was in his first semester of college. And when I was moving to Atlanta to start a band, the one thing we didn't have was a singer. And I said to this kid, Hey man, you're really good. Why don't you move to Atlanta with me and start a band? And he did. And his parents still, hate me 32 years later because the <laughs> RA on their son's dorm from what his first semester convinced him it was a good idea to drop out of college and move to Atlanta to be in a band. <laughs> and I did not stay in that band very long, and he continued with it. And he's had a, a lengthy career, and he still makes music, but his parents are not happy with me to this day. That's a true story. Uh, can I can I ask that guy's name? His name is James Hall. Oh, and, uh, and fun fact, I moved to Atlanta, to Atlanta. I moved to Nashville in 2004 and around 2008, I was at home Depot in line and I saw a woman in front of me in a James hall t-shirt, like a concert shirt. Cause he had a record deal and played around and he did, had a good run at things. And I looked at it and I, and I was just staring at it. And this woman turned around and looked at me and she's an older woman, like in her probably late sixties at the time. And, you well, I mean, truth be told, it looked like I was really checking her out because I was just kind of staring at her chest when she looked at me. And I looked up and I go, oh, I'm so sorry. That's a James Hall t-shirt. I've never seen that. And uh, and she goes, oh, do, do you know James? Are you a fan of his music? And it didn't even occur to me what I, who I was talking to. And I said, oh, well, the, well, I know James. I went to college with him. And as those words came out of my mouth, I went, well, hang on. This is a woman in her late sixties wearing a James Hall T-shirt. She's obviously his mother. Like <laughs> I'm in Nashville, <laughs> Tennessee, and as I put that together, and it was like her. She had there was like paint on it. She was in the middle of a project. You could tell it was like one of her old. I'm going to get dirty right. T-shirts. And she looked at me. She goes, "How do you know James?" And I said, "I uh, I went to college with James." And she looks at me. She goes, "What's your name?" <laughs> oh. And I said, "I said Steve Gorman." And she literally put a hand on her hip the way a woman of a certain generation does, and said, well, things certainly worked out great for you.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, you just take off running at that point. Like, there's nothing else
0: you can do. With nothing but venom. And and I was there with my son, who was, like, seven at the time, and he's immediately aware of the fact that some old woman's being mean to my dad. Like, he was a little – you could see he was like, what's going on here? He was a little uncomfortable. And I said – yeah, things did really work out for me. Great, thank you. She goes, I wasn't congratulating you. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, I saw James last year. Things it seems like he's doing pretty good too. And she goes, well, that's one. I guess that's one way of looking at it. And I and I looked at her. I said, well, I was happy to see him. And she didn't say anything. And it was just this pregnant, awful pause. And she said, well, you know, I, the decision he made because he had some. And I and I said, excuse me, excuse me. I, I'm not I'm not interested in you standing here and giving me grief over a decision your son made 25 years ago. Uh, that was his choice. He wanted it. I gave him an opportunity, and he's had 25 years to change course, and he hasn't. So don't look at me with this. And she was couldn't believe I was talking to her like that. But I was like, lady, I'm not going to let you yell at me in front of my kid. Yeah. What's the matter with you? Yeah, come and on. So, uh, and it was funny. And literally a month later, I'm in Atlanta, and I bump into James. And he walks over to me and goes, "Oh man, I heard you saw my mom." <laughs> you know, and then we're like college kids again. You know, like I yeah, did. She yelled at me. It was crazy.
1: My goodness. Oh man. Oh, I am. I do not envy you um, for being there in a and a. Gr- it was a grocery store. You said Home Depot. A uh, Home Depot. Oh, geez, even worse. It, that place is a warehouse. It's like, it, you know, there's no way of getting in and out. And first of all. You walk into Home Depot, it's going to take you at least 15 minutes to find anything that you need. So you're going to be there for a while. So that means you're probably going to encounter her in another aisle at some point or somewhere down the road. And so I can't imagine what it was like getting out of there for you. But um, before you go, uh, Birdie told me that you're writing a book about the Black Crows.
0: I'm writing a book about my life and uh, uh, my life during a period of time when I was uh, a member of a band that I started called the Black Crows. Yes,
1: that is a great, that is a great legal uh, explanation of the book you're writing. I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, can't say it's about the Black Crows. It's about Steve's life from these ages after called- the RA days and before the uh, join the show with Austin Huff podcast days.
0: It's a story of my life in the band and it's tight. Its working title is Suppressed Homicidal Urges.
1: <laughs> are you are you writing it yourself or are you, like are, is an author helping you or like are you... I'm
0: I'm uh, I'm working with a guy named Stephen Hayden who's a great music writer. Oh yeah. Writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the... uh the two of us are working together. I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm writing it but you know, it's like uh it's it's as far as I need help, you know, I got a lot of dots and he's helping me connect them and keep it linear and focused and going down a direction that someone who doesn't know anything about the band could still read and find entertaining.
1: And Stephen, he used to write for Grantland, right?
0: He did. He wrote for Grantland. He's put a few pieces on The Ringer in okay. the last few years. He's with Uprocks now, okay. and he's got a couple of books. He just put his second book out. It's called uh, Twilight of the Gods, The End of Classic Rock. It's a tremendous read, and his first book is called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, and that's also great. He's a tremendous writer. And I'm I'm thrilled to be working with them.
1: What um are you now you're a big reader? What what book are you currently reading?
0: Uh, I just got a book called The Oyster War that I've not yet started, but I've been meaning to read it for a while. And then um, I but but I'm on a drill dry spell lately. Like the last few months, I haven't read anything. I've got a stack of books. Uh, you know, this is such a cliche, but it's true. On the bedside table, that are just looking at me, they're mocking me every day. Yeah. Because since I started writing this book. If I have free time I'm I'm usually just scribbling notes and getting thoughts out that will come back around and make sense of at a later date.
1: Okay. Yeah. I uh I just started a book uh on uh fellow Nashvilleian Jack White. Um, and so I'll tell you how that is if uh you have any interest in reading that.
0: I think I think is that the book where he uh he succeeds wildly?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. Cool. To where, yeah.
1: yeah. It started, I think his record label was first one man records and now they're up to three. So that's, uh, I,
0: Hey, check this out. I was at the Las Vegas airport in 2006, right after he moved to Nashville and, uh, the Black Rose had played a festival out there called Vegas. Um, and I was waiting the the Las Vegas airport has those shuttles, like a tram that takes you from one terminal to where the gates are. And I was waiting for it and I was getting a red eye home. So it was like midnight and I'm at the airport and I get on the little tram and Jack White comes on. He comes, walks on right next to me. And we had met over the years, uh, the Black Crows piano player, Ed Harsh, was from Detroit. And he brought the White Stripes into a Black Crows session in like 2000. Like, hey, check these guys out. They're cool from Detroit. And we so we'd met them then and before anybody really knew who they were. And, and we'd crossed paths a couple times. But this is the first time he and I actually had a real conversation We got on this tram at the Vegas airport, and I go, hey, Jack, and I said, hey, you live in Nashville, and I goes, yeah, I just got there, and I was like, oh, cool, well, you know, I'll see you around town or whatever, super friendly, and he goes, I got to tell you something, man. I said, yeah, what's that? He goes, you won't remember this, but the Black Crows played the Fox Theater in Detroit on on Southern Harmony, which was our second album. He goes, so, like, when was that, 92? I said, yeah, fall of 92, and he goes, well... I was like 15 and I was working security at the gig and they assigned me to the, your dressing room. And I, so I was the kid in the chair outside your dressing room in the yellow security shirt. Yes. And I go, wait a minute. And he goes, yeah. And you were really nice to me and you talked to me and offered me a Coke. And, and I told you my dad's first name was Gorman. And then we had a whole chat and, uh, and I looked at him, I go, wait a minute. You were an altar boy at the church. My parents got married. And he goes, you remember that? I go, yeah, I do remember that conversation. He goes, yeah, that was me.
1: <laughs> That's incredible. One that you remember that, and two, just yeah. that 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 you have that uh, you have that connection to Jack White, and that yeah, just like in passing. Oh yeah, I was the yeah. security guard outside of your uh, your Well,
0: gate. It was it's funny because my 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 family's from Detroit originally. My parents are. I was born right. there, but I left as a baby. So I just had an antenna up anytime I'm in Detroit to begin with. And then he, we were talking. You know, he just. I just saw a kid sitting there for five hours outside of our dressing room, like like no one's getting back there. It's not like we're you know we're a sec- we have security breaches all the time, but and I just said, hey man, you want a coke or something? And he was like, yeah, thanks. And 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 then he told me in Vegas, he goes, he goes, yeah, for th- you guys did two nights, and I was there both nights, and no one in your band even acknowledged me, but you offered me a coke and were really nice. <laughs> and I was That's... like, I was like, I did, yeah, thanks. So um, anyway, why, yeah. why don't you hire me? <laughs> yeah, make me the fourth man. Yeah, come that, on, man. You, you, things are going well for you. I could use a new gig. I'm sick of these dudes.
1: When you first when you first uh, uh, met him under the you know when he was with the White Stripes, did did he try and pass Meg off as his sister?
0: I don't think that ever. Came in. I mean, we we, we no one asked. It okay. was just kind of like, it was just hey, I'm Jack. This is Meg. Oh, hey, okay. how are you? You know, I I didn't get into a conversation enough to even know what was going on with that stuff.
1: That was always a uh, a weird dynamic. But Steve, um, look, I told you we'd do this for maybe uh, twenty five minutes. We've over doubled that. So thank you so much, one for your time and two for just uh your wealth of of knowledge and insight into the world of music and and rock and roll and uh you know I think the world of you uh, this it, this felt like the old days um at uh the previous radio station we had worked at and um and it, of just us talking and losing track of time and um i so thank you very much it was a, definitely a blast from the past and I, I i miss you tons and i hope uh wish nothing but uh success for you uh and the show and uh and the book you're writing i can't wait to uh read that that's gonna jump to the uh, top of my book reading list
0: well, i i would certainly hope so austin if nothing else i expect one sale from the st louis metropolitan area and um uh, it's always a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you. It'll happen to. It'll have to happen here because, of course, I'm not going to St. Louis for any reason. Wow! But listen, no, no, you have cool. a great time up there, and uh, and and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll talk soon.
1: Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get some uh, Waffle House. Okay. You, <clears throat> you bought the last one, and I'll uh, I'll get the next.
0: I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I am now a vegan.
1: Okay, then I will never speak to you for the rest of my life.
0: Whatever it takes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Steve. See you, brother.
1: Well, that does it for episode one. I want to thank you guys so much for for listening, for taking the time out to um, check it out. Uh, please hit me up on Twitter. Let me know what you think. I'm at Austin Huff, spelled exactly how it sounds. Um, Uh, Again, this podcast is based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, It's recorded at the wonderful studios of 101 ESPN WXOS. I want to give a special thanks to Chris Newpert, a.k.a. Haas, uh, Patrick Quinn, Mike Ryder, uh, all you guys, Chris Files, all of you guys for the help getting this podcast off the ground. Uh, You you know, they say it takes a village. For me, it takes a damn near hemisphere. So thank you, guys. Um, And again, if you enjoyed what you hear, please, please share this podcast with as many people as you can get the word out word of mouth is the only way we'll grow it so um i want to thank you guys and uh a new episode will be coming to you next week thank you guys seacrest out
0: this is the end of the show if you made it this far you're probably austin's mom thanks for listening